Shalom, shalom, Betariel and friends of Betariel, and welcome to the Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. We're still in the section of the book where Moses gives his last advice to the people of Israel, and these counsels are precious to us, for we remember that Moses dedicated his life to serving God and went through so much in his 40-year ministry and at the same time maintained a great relationship with God to the point that many times in the text, Uh, we find the Almighty addressing Moses as one who speaks to a best friend. What is Moses' last advice? This is what we will look into today, and Moses is not shy to repeat them in many ways and through many illustrations, for he knew that Israel will forget them very soon. But this is scriptures, and these instructions and guidance are still there for us to read and be read so that we do not forget. Now, before we get into this book, let us answer a question we recently received. Sharon will read it for us. We understand how central and final a role the sacrifice of Yeshua means for our lives. The book of Hebrews confirms that point when it's written in chapter 10, verse 12, But when Messiah had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then in verse 14 we read, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If this is the case, and sacrifices for sins are no longer necessary, why will there be sacrifices in the millennium? Thank you. Well, thank you for this question. This is an often asked question. Why are there sacrifices during the millennium or the messianic times, a time when the Messiah will be present on earth? Didn't Jesus' death and resurrection put an end to the sacrificial system? Yes, his death and resurrection did put an end to the to sacrifices for the believers, but not for the unbelievers. During the millennium, both believers and unbelievers will live side by side, and God graciously reinstated some parts of the sacrificial system so that the unsaved will see the utter depth of sin through these sacrifices. The description of this era concerning the temple and the sacrifices are fundamental in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. Now considering the prophetic chart as you have on the screen after the seven year tribulation times only the believers will enter the messianic era. However their children for they will have a lot of children will have to come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua for no one is born a believer. So they would need to understand what sin is and there is nothing like the sacrifice of innocence animals to describe the ravages of sin. The fact that Yeshua will be present does not mean that everyone will automatically become to be uh, a believer. In the same way, when he was present on earth 2,000 years ago, after a failed ministry of three years and an additional 40 days after his resurrection, and after fulfilling all prophecies of the first coming, only few men and women came to believe. God never forces anyone to believe. In the messianic times, there will be sin. It is not the eternal state yet when there will be no sacrifice at all and there will be no sin at all. So the millennium is not sin-free. It will be there. Sin will be there to a smaller degree, but sin will be present. 
In fact, I just want to bring to you that those many prophecies describing the era of the millennium or the messianic age. By the way, I use both terms. They speak of a time still with many conflicts. For instance, in Psalm 2, we read that the Messiah will, ro- will rule with a rod of iron, meaning that peace will still need to be enforced because rebellion will still exist. So far, Yeshua never ruled over the nations. He will in the messianic times. We read in the last chapter of Zachariah as well, which speaks of, the, of this millennium, that those nations who will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles and not come up to Jerusalem on that day to worship the Lord will not receive rain but plagues instead. We often confound the, the, the messianic times with heaven, but they are very different. Peter actually puts the millennium time period within the time frame of the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a term designating a time of judgment on sin. This is why at the end of the millennium, as, as far as concerning Second Peter 3.10, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt, giving way to the eternal state. Then God will erase every shadow of sin. Another and last question uh, along the same line is when, why, why the reinstatement of the mosaic temple system during the millennium? This millennial temple will not be the reinstitution of the mosaic law. Both systems are similar, but they are different. For instance, in the temple area, the holy pl- in the holy place, the, there's no candlestick. The light of the candlesticks represents the present presence of the Holy Spirit with the believer, and their absence may indicate that the law of the Lord will be in the heart of every believer, as Jeremiah 31 prophesied. There will be no, no showbread, table of showbread, for Yeshua will be there providing for every man, yet many will still reject him. There will be no veil separating the Holy of Holies from the you know, for Yeshua, that is, will be present, yet many still will still reject him. There will be no high priest. Yeshua will be there. And see how hard man's heart can be. All of these things makes us appreciate all the more God's grace and the miracle of salvation. As for the feasts of Israel, only two are mentioned. Two are mentioned. There will not be the Feast of First Fruit, for Yeshua is resurrected and present there. There will not be the Feast of Pentecost, for the Bride of the Messiah will already be at home in the New Jerusalem. There will not be the Feast of Trumpets, for the resurrection of all believers would have already taken place by then. There will not be Yom Kippur, for the nation and Israel would have been judged by then. But there will be the Feast of Passover, to remind the people of the death of the Lamb of God. And there will be the Feast of Tabernacles, to remind the people of the great blessings of being in Yeshua, a blessing they would be enjoying at the time, yet not all and will will come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. It seems that the whole period, by the way, of time is mainly there to show us the power of sin, because in spite of the visible manifestation of the King of Kings' presence and, and authority during this time, people still will not come to faith. Let us now go to our study of Deuteronomy. You, if you have your handout with you, and handout that you can always download from our website at betarel.ca, we're on page 11, section C.
We've began to see how Moses spoke of the circumcision of the heart, a surprising saying from the lawgiver, which helps us to see the essence of the law. The saying is found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. This is what it says. Therefore, Moses says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. What is so astonishing in this saying, here Moses mentioned circumcision at this particular point in time when this generation of Israels were not yet physically circumcised, but instead he speaks of the circumcision of the heart. It seems that during these 40 years during, through the desert, they were not circumcised. We read in Joshua chapter 5 that it was after the, they, they crossed the Jordan River that they were asked to be circumcised. In verse 2 we read, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. What is extraordinary here is that while there were, there, there were two commandments for the circumcision, one from the Abrahamic covenant and the other from the Mosaic covenant, Moses overlooks both of them and speaks of the circumcision of the heart instead. Moses is here teaching how to, to, the condition of the heart of man supersedes and precedes any action we may do. God never intended the circumcision or any other laws to be only a, a ritual by nature. There is intent and meaning behind all these commandments. And here Moses brings in a, a law and expounds on it beyond its physical significance. But this is just like what Yeshua taught during the, the Sermon on the Mount, bringing the spirit of the law before the letter of the law. And this is what Paul must have meant in Romans 2.29 when he said, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is saying here, what he's saying here is exactly what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy. If the spirit of the law is not followed, the letter of the law itself is not valid anymore. Furthermore, here in this verse, Paul is not comparing Jews and Gentiles, but believing Jews with unbelieving Jews. The word inwardly is, is the word, same word for secret. So he is a Jew who is one in his innermost Self. This word implies an, an understanding and an, an intimate relationship between a believer and his God. This word is used to speak of the remnant of Israel, the true Israel, one who has a secret, strong relationship with God, not only an outward one. But let me paraphrase this verse by bringing it right to our doorstep. We can paraphrase it. And say, but he is not a Christian who is one uh, only inwardly. And this verse helps us to recognize the real Jew within the community. So it helps us to recognize the real believer within the body of the Messiah as well. This is one of many other ways Paul speaks about this important matter. And it all has to do again with our relationship with God. This is what Moses will bring out more and more. This is, this is at the beginning. This is the alpha of our sanctification. If we get this right, we will avoid so many problems. If we take care of our relationship with God first, all other relationships, the horizontal one, will fall right and we will be the recipient of so many blessings.
This is then Moses' message to the Israelites before they entered the land. And the rest of chapter Deuteronomy, of chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, it enhances this truth in a more practical way. We can consider the following verse as an introduction, really, to the law that he is about to expound very soon in chapter 12. Here Moses considered the defenseless, the, the strangers, and how we ought to love and take care of them. This is practical faith. Let's read verses 17 to 19 of Deuteronomy 10. It is a passage which speaks of our forgotten neighbors, which Moses links with the essence of the law. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. See how Moses is concerned with the helpless, the unprotected within the society. It is so easy to abuse someone who appears weak. But here God says, hey, they are mine. They are mine. The orphan has no father to protect him. The widow has no husband to defend her or take care of her. The stranger is often a target, a scapegoat, since he is not part of the society. The abused, these abused ones may think that they are for, forsaken and alone in their struggles, but the Lord is present. He sees all things. And this passage is so strategically placed here because very soon again, we will enter into the study of the law of God. And if there's one thing that this law brings out, it is that equality between all people, regardless of social status, ethnicities, or any other matters. And of this we see here, all of this we see here is the practical application of what it means to have a relationship with God. Again, love God and your neighbor. This is, by the way, what the Ten Commandments are. And I love the way this chapter ends. Verse 21 and 22, speaking about God, we read, He is your praise. And he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. He, the Lord, is our praise. He is the one to whom all praises should be directed because he is the one who has done, who has done, who has created the whole universe and is right now doing great things around us. And notice what historical fact Moses recalls here. He tells them to the Israelites, remember how many uh, of you were uh, came down from Egypt, right? Originally, Jacob and his 11 sons uh, with their family counted 70 persons. But now he says to them, look around and see the blessings. They grew to about 3 million people in a short span of about 400 years. That is the blessing that Moses asked them to consider here. We often miss out on realizing how much blessings the Lord has been granting us. And as one will often find many parallels between Moses and Paul, for in many ways, by the way, in many ways, they had a similar ministry. Moses 
taught Israel the word of God, and Paul taught the remnant of Israel and the nations the word of God. It is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul brings us also to consider all that the Lord has done for us and to whom all praises should be directed. This is what he says. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Where did he prepare these things? We usually read this and we think that this is actually for heaven. But no, look at verse 10. He says, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. Consider all the blessings God gave you over the past few years. I'm sure that there are many of them. And let's ask God to reveal even more and what he has for what he has done. Let us pray that he brings it back to our memory, that he opens our spiritual eyes so that we can praise him all the more for all the great things he does. And in the next chapter of Deuteronomy, 11. After speaking of all these blessings, Moses brings out Israel's supreme duty, which was to love the Lord and to show, to reflect that love in keeping his word. Beginning with chapter 19, Moses brings out the importance of teaching our children. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. Beautiful words. The believer out to teach the word of God to his children. Uh, I, I believe this is done mainly in the home, of course, through the teaching of the Word of God and through the behavior of both parents. And we further learn that the parents must make their home a strong testimony. When we think of how the Israelites were told to put the, the, the Word of God on the doorframe of their homes, we understand how this symbol would remind them each time they go in and out of the house, how vital it is to bring the presence of God with you all the time. And when we think of children, we ought to think of also new believers as well and the responsibility that we have towards them because we're all parents towards them. After the resurrection, by the way, you know, Jesus had a private encounter with Peter, who, who had the keys of the kingdom, being the leader of the twelve, through whom a new congregation of God was to be born. And there Yeshua spoke to him and asked, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter answered, answered and said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Yeshua said to him, feed my lambs. Again, he asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter answered the same way. And this time the Messiah told him, feed my sheep. Lambs and sheep, these were to represent the main groups which were to constitute the new body of the Messiah. The sheep would be the mature, somehow mature believers. And the lambs, the new believers, both groups are so dear to the Messiah and especially the lambs for whom special care, that is, was to be given by teaching them the word. Now back in Deuteronomy, there's a third thing in verse 18. See what it says. 
Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. See, it's not only in the home, but the whole of one's being that is to be dedicated to God. God insists that his word should be laid up in our hearts and in our soul as if they were constantly engraved in our hands so that we remember God in everything we do. And they shall be as frontlets before our, before our eyes so that we remember that the word of God should be used to test and screen all that we see. There lies the secret of a happy life and the recipe is no secret at all. Stick to the word of God. And while we have the word and all things given in our, our disposal for a fruitful and happy life, now Moses enhances something that is very, very important. That is obedience. Obedience. How obedient should we be? Uh, we, we know many things, but how far are we ready to go to obey God? One thing that is stressed here in Deuteronomy is that all the blessings are our disposal only if we obey the word see what is written in deuteronomy chapter 11 verses 13 to 14 and it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments which i command you today to love the lord your god and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul then i will give you the rain for your land in its season the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain in your new wine and your oil for if you carefully keep all these commandments which i command you to do to love the lord your god to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him then the lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves Again, these are such beautiful words. You know, so obedience was the attitude of heart that would lead to their well-being. What Moses is saying here again is that if the Israelites obeyed the law, the promised land will be blessed and cared <coughs> for by God and be made fruitful. <coughs> God will make sure that the land will flow with milk and honey. And it is the same thing for believers today as well. Yes, there will always be tribulations, temptations, and struggles, but these things will be easily surmountable if we obey God. Unfortunately, and like it was in Israel, I see so many brothers and sisters obeying what they think they should obey. But let us remember that selected obedience is not obedience at all. It is what we can call convenience, facilities. Unfortunately, many choose this method of obedience and follow what suits them personally. This is not obedience to God. This will not bring blessings to our lives. We know that all believers in the Bible were baptized, right? And do you know what these early believers called baptism, that is in the first centuries? A sacramentum, sacramentum, which is a Latin word for, for the Roman soldier's oath to absolute devotion and obedience to his army. The early believers knew what their faith cost them. They were living in a world that was very hostile to the Messiah. Their lives were often at stake, but be becoming a believer then was understood to obey the word. Let us read Moses' conclusion of this chapter in Deuteronomy 11.29, where he speaks of two mountains, one for blessings and one 
for curses. Now it shall be, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And so here Moses mentions Ebal and Gerizim. Moses knew he would not be part of this gathering because he wasn't allowed to enter the land. You can see in the map a modern picture of Mount Ebal on the left and Mount Gerizim on the right. And in the middle stands the city of Shechem, today is called Nablus. Nablus. Uh, the mounts actually are about 50 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And so after Moses' departure, for he did not enter the land again, when the Israelites reached these two mountains, the scene, I want to tell you, is very moving. It is explained in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 to 35. These half tribe, that is, their half of the tribes would stand on the mount and the other half will stand on the other mount. And there was about a mile separating Mount Gerizim to Mount Ebal. And there they all heard the curses and the blessings that were shouted out by the Levites who were actually in the valley in between the two mounts. It's interesting to see that Gerizim, which stands for blessing, means cutting off or, or, or cutting off from. That reminds us, the believers, that, that, we, that we live in, in a world where we, are not, well, we are not in this world. And it shows our need to be separated from what is evil. We, we need to undergo sanctification. And the word ebal, which stands for curses, means bare. It means empty itself. And so these two mounts speak to us today. We must, of course, stand always on Gerizim. And it's significant that these two mounts were in between, were actually the city of Shechem. Later, this place was the location that marked the downfall of Israel. Rehoboam's son and successor of King Solomon went to Shechem to be crowned king over all Israel, but he is the one who actually divided Israel. Later, when the division of the kingdom took place, Shechem became the first capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. That's in First King chapter 12. It is unfortunate that the nations chose Mount Ebal, bare and empty. And until now, 3,000 years later, we still see the effect of the curses pronounced there by the Levites. We look further into these blessings and curses when we look into, that is, chapter 28. Now let us move in chapter 12. I'm just going to do the entry. We have enough time to, for an introduction. Chapter 12 is a turning point in the, of the book of Deuteronomy. After 11 chapters of introduction and a great advice, now Moses begins, begins that is, to expound the law. And before we, we, we begin looking at this passage, we notice that many chapters 12 in the Bible often mark an important point in the history of Israel. This is for memory's sake, by the way. Remember in Genesis 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant, the beginning of the history of the nation. In Exodus 12, it marks the birth of the nation where God gives Israel a new calendar with a new year. This is marked by the Passover and the blood of the Lamb that saved the Israelites from judgment. In Joshua, the first 12 chapter concerns the conquering of the land, while the remaining chapters deal with the distribution of the land. Matthew 12 marks the final rejection of Yeshua by the religious authorities. Matthew 13 begins the parable of the kingdom of God. 
Acts 1 to 12 concentrates on Peter. Then from Acts 13, the scriptures focuses on Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. From Acts 13 onward, Peter is barely mentioned. Also, Revelation 12 is, con- is a condensed history of Israel. And so this is all the time we have for, to, for today. May the Lord richly bless you all. Tonight